We are all together at the tail end of the uh, letter from James. Pastor Bruce started the sermon series when it was a lot more bright and sunny and warm uh, outside. We are here at the tail end. If you, if you recall, we started it with the opening words of count it all joy. What a blessing. But today we're uh, on page 1291 in your pew Bible, chapter 5, verse 13, going to verse 18. Again, James chapter 5, starting with verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it may not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The Word of God. Good morning, everybody. When uh, Jesus uh, taught his uh, followers how to pray, he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He starts that prayer in a very unusual way in the ancient world, particularly in the biblical world, to call God our father. Part of it is the recognition that God is a father, but the other part is that he is our father. And I think that's important because the question that naturally comes up when you talk about God as a father is what kind of father is he? And James is going to show us this morning that he's a good, good father. That he loves us more than we love ourselves, that his plan for us is good and it's the reason that we can count it all joy. James is also talking about prayer. He gives us uh, three different contexts for prayer before we go to the Lord's Supper. One, one context is if you're cheerful, it's the occasion to give thanksgiving uh, to the giver of all the good gifts in your life. Uh, the second context is of suffering. That is, if you're sick, uh, God is your healer. In fact, he doesn't just merely heal the sick, he raises the dead. And then third, and it's going to uh, be a little harder to see, but I hope it will be just as compelling, is that if you feel cheated because God has not given you uh, what you asked for, know that God's plan is better than our prayers. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, Isaiah says about God. So very quickly, the very first context that James uh, begins to get our minds around is this idea of being cheerful. He says, if anyone is cheerful, verse 13, let him sing praise. It's in 
important that when we are happy to remember that God is the giver of all the gifts that make us happy. There are things that come into our lives uh, that make us happy. We get the job that we want. We got into the school that we want. We got the grades that we wanted. We've got the affirmation from our boss that we've desired. We've, we've uh, uh, found the spouse that we so long to have. We have the children and often the way we want them, not always. We, these things tend to be the sources of our happiness. And God and James doesn't say, don't have happiness. Don't find happiness in those things. Don't be joyful. No, he says, when you are happy, recognize that the giver of all those gifts that make you happy is God. And don't mistake the gifts with the giver. And sometimes... Even though we don't intentionally do that, we, we drift that way. That is, that when we open the Christmas presents under the tree, we forget that someone wrapped them up, purchased them, thought of us, loved us. That is, it's not just the way we see God, it's also the way we see one another. We forget that the gifts have a giver. And in this case... Everything that comes into our life that is good, that brings us this happiness, is from the giver, God. And sometimes, we mistake those gifts and put them in place of God. And when we do that, the Bible calls that a disordered love. He doesn't, it doesn't say don't have that love. I think that would take it too far. It's just that there's an order to those loves. That is, sometimes we love the wrong things. It's not just that we love good things, that we love bad things, things that we should not love. But it is also true we have an overlove of good things. But that also implies that we underlove the best things. Think about it for a minute. One of the sources of disordered loves is not just simply that we love things we should not love. That seems to be more obvious. But we also overlove the good things, and that Bible has a word the Bible has a word for that, and they call it idolatry. To overdesire, to overlove even good things is a bad thing. But it is also true that we have not developed a deep, profound love for the best things. The things that that God wants us to love. It was in our confession. That is, we we don't love him near as much as what he can, what? Give us. And you see, we're not loving the best things. We, we tend to love the facility, the, the, the home, the, the job, rather than the giver who gave us those things. And James is saying that when we do that, everything seems to fall apart when we get the order out of, what, out of order. Allow me to illustrate that in two ways. First, 
Y'all know the story, many of you know the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis, and, and uh, uh, they're a, a really an amazing couple. They, they live in the city uh, of Ur, and, and uh, they've been married for uh, some time now. They're, she's in her 70s, and he's uh, in his uh, 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 near 90s, and uh, God calls them out, and, and, and you can imagine that they're lives up till that point have been both uh, prosperous but also incredibly painful. You see, Abram's name, that's what his name was before God changed it, literally means father. And so here is uh, a Sarah uh, in a community where they are uh, well known or at least somewhat known. And, and she, and people often ask you, who's your husband? And you say, Abram. And the next thing they want to know is tell me about your children because your name, his name means father. And she's gotten on. She has infertility problems. She can't have children, or at least has not had any, for a long, long period of time. And it's the desire of her heart. It's not just a desire of her heart, but there's a theological issue with it. Because when they go out from the city of Ur, God says, I want you to go out because I am going to to give you children so numerous that it's going to be more than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the heaven. And in light of that, I want to change your husband's name. I'm going to change it from Abram, which means father, to Abraham, father of many children. Can you imagine you you go into a Safeway and you lay down your credit card and it says Abraham and you've got no children. You, 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 you go to, uh, to a, a, a family retreat that, 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 that young life is putting on and you've got no children. And, and so this, this pain of her heart is not only that she's not been able to, to provide her, her husband with children to reflect his name, but theologically she's not been able to fulfill the promise that God has given him and to her. And, and, and so you have all of this, this pressure and tension on her, not just because she is infertile, but because of what it represents. That every time he uses his name, it's a reminder of her failure. And so she devises a plan uh, and she says, well, well, I've got this handmaid. Her name is Hagar. And, and, and if God's not going to bless my womb, we can use hers, the first surrogate. And, and so she goes to Abraham, Abraham and she says, Abraham, I got a plan. Let's use Hagar and that child will be my child, even though I, I, I contributed nothing to this. And, and so Hagar has a child named Ishmael and, and, and everything's going sort of okay. But then God blesses Abram and Sarah with a child of their own. And when that child comes along, Sarah turns on Hagar and Ishmael and says, Abram, you got to get rid of these folks because it's a reminder that we did not trust God. So let's get her out. And they do. And, and what, what's being proven here is that when we love our children too much, when we want something so badly that we will uh, circumvent God's plan to to trust him in the absence of the fulfillment of a promise 
God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should ever repent. But sometimes we feel like we've got to help him along. And because of that, we come up with these grotesque plans that wreck everything about the family. And it did. It wrecked their family from then on. See, we know the damage of loving your children too little. What we're not so aware of in the Western world is loving them too much is also damaging. Let me give you a second illustration. And that is, did you notice in the Bible that the, the two guys that offer the most teaching on marriage are both single? Now, who goes to a marriage conference and the guy is a single guy? The two guys that have the most ink in the Bible about marriage is Jesus and Paul, both single men. And when Paul writes about marriage, a lot of it is in one particular place called Ephesians 5. That's a letter to Ephesus, and it's in the fifth chapter that you'll find, beginning at about verse 21, uh, 22, a teaching about marriage. And when Paul teaches uh, about marriage, it's not very long before you get the quick impression that he's talking about something bigger than just marriage. He's almost treating marriage like a sacrament. And a sacrament, which we are about to observe, is, is a sign that points to something deeper and more profound than the physical thing present. That's kind of the definition of a sacrament, is that it is a picture of, of something greater, something bigger, something more profound, something deeper than the actual physical thing that's, that, that it represents. And so marriage, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, as great as marriage could be, or how horrible as marriage could be, depending upon the situation, both of those, the good one and the bad one, and all of those in between, point to the same thing. They're, they're kind of like a signpost or maybe a mile marker. You're on the highway and, and you want to know how far you've got in the old days. Now you've got GPS telling you. But in the old days, they had these and still do these mile markers on the interstate. You see them, they're a little green or sometimes black, and they'll say a number on them. But that's how we used to know how far it was to go to where we were going. And in a lot of ways, marriage is like that mile marker. It tells you where you're going. And how far you still have to go. In bad marriages, it, it's a long way, it seems. And in the best marriages, it's still a distance to where we're going. So Paul says that every marriage on the planet, since the first marriage, Adam and Eve, where he said, you're bone of my bone, uh, flesh of my flesh, are all supposed to be pointing to another marriage. A relationship between the bridegroom of Jesus Christ and the church. And then he says something amazing in this. He says, this is a profound mystery. And so he's ripping us momentarily out of this context of your individual marriage where you might be thinking it is a profound mystery. But Paul is not calling it a profound mystery. He is calling the marriage between the church 
and Jesus Christ as the profound mystery in which all marriages, good and bad, and everything in between points to. But the good news is if you are married, if you're single, if you're divorced and you, or you're widowed, everybody collectively who are in Christ is the bride of Christ. Sometimes we make the error theologically and make it about an individual person. All of the pronouns that are in Ephesians 5 are plural, which means Paul is teaching this. That we, the singles, the marrieds, the divorced, the widows, are the bride of Christ. Not you as an individual is a bride of Christ. It's not that God has many brides. He has one bride in which we collectively make up. And we miss that in an individualistic Western culture. And to our detriment, we don't need the church. When we profoundly need the church. Because we are only the bride of Christ together. No matter what status we have here on earth, we are collectively in eternity the bride of Christ. And that's the deeper reality. That's why it's a profound mystery for us. Our good, good father has given us a good, good husband in Jesus. Which means we don't take selfies with the milestones. We want a picture with the real thing. You you know... Sometimes people don't know what a selfie is. It's, if, you, if you've not noticed these folks where they will take a can, uh, their phone and put it at the end of a stick and constantly take pictures of themselves near something. And so this illustration of sometimes we get so caught up in the symbol, in the sign, we forget what it's always pointing us toward. And so sometimes a selfie does that for us. It, it tends to, to uh, uh, put in stone, not literally, this idea that, the, that this particular mile marker, your marriage, your children, uh, your widowedness, your singleness, your, uh, your divorceness is the end of who you are, the identity of who you are. And Paul is saying, this is why it's such a profound mystery. That is not who you are. You are not primarily a married person, even if you're married. You're not primarily a single person, even if you are single. You are not sufficiently described as a divorced person, even if you are. And you are not a widow or a widower if that is who you are right this moment. Ultimately, profoundly, you are an engaged person to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And whatever status God puts you in right now, married or single or divorced or widowed, it is only a mile marker of where you're going, good or bad. Keep your eyes on the ultimate love. And that's how we 
can see. Everything that good in our life is an opportunity to give thanks to a good, good father. We can look at our money and how it points us to an everlasting wealth and security in Jesus. We can look at our success and how it points to God's glory. You can look at your romance and points uh, to the ultimate spouse. You can look at your popularity and how it points uh, to God's affirmation of you. And the absence of all of those things are still a pointer to Jesus. You see, I think the American health and wealth gospel missed it on this point. They thought that if you had these things, you would have the pointers. But you have the pointers even if you don't have these things. Because the absence of these things are also a pointer. Who does not desire to be a king but a deposed king, C.S. Lewis says. In fact, C.S. Lewis will put it this way. We are all half-hearted creatures who settle for far too little. We're the dissatisfied children, he says. We are far too satisfied like a child who demands to continue to play in a mud puddle when the child's parents are saying, let's take a holiday at the ocean. And that's what James is saying. When things are going really well for you, that's the opportunity to give thanks to the giver. To remind yourself that the gift is not the giver. And secondly, the context is when you feel sad, when your body is failing, when you're sick. Is anyone among you sick? Verse 14 says, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, as verse 16, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that they may be healed. One of the beauties of the gospel, and and, and Isaac said it a little bit earlier when we were confessing, it is so easy to confess when you are already forgiven. When it was in doubt, confession is hard. When you don't know how the person is going to respond to you, when you have questions because you have seen how the other person has responded to other people's failings, and and because of that, that makes you even more leery of, of confessing to them, then you don't confess. But the scriptures are replete with verse after verse that it's not that you merely will be forgiven, but you are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, Jesus Christ took the penalty for your sins so that your sins can be forgiven. All sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages, the payment of sin, his death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so the point that Paul is making in Romans is that you are forgiven. And because you are forgiven and there can be no punishment, for anything that you have ever done or ever will do, or even at this moment as you sit in the chair in the pew that you're in, you're, th- you're thinking of things you ought not to be thinking. You're still forgiven. And that frees you to confess. It frees you to be known because you know how he's going to respond because you're his child and you are part of the bride of Christ that he is presenting to his son, holy without blemish. 
How's that possible? We're full of sin. How can I be without blemish? It is because the other half of the gospel is not that he just forgave you of your sins, but he's clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. He's given you the wedding gown. One of the best parts of weddings is to see the bride coming down in her wedding gown because it is a reminder that the bride is wearing the gown that has been given her. All adept in the righteousness of Christ. He tells you that it's an opportunity for self-examination when you're sick to begin to look and see what's going on in your life, where you are, where you've been, where you're going. That's, you have got nothing else to do. You're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything. So it's an opportunity for self-examination and, and for confession. But as soon as I, I say that, as soon as James says that, our minds begin to think, well, then that means if, if there's a sickness, there must be sin. If, if there's suffering, it must mean that person has done something. Let me quickly just put that to, a, to rest, that not all sickness, not all suffering is connected to a particular sin. There was a man who was born blind, who's brought to Jesus, and the question was asked, did this man sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus' answer is neither. Or how about Job, who's covered in sores with his own sickness? What does God call Job? The most righteous man on earth. And if that's not enough convincing, the most perfect human being who has ever lived suffered on a cross as an innocent man. We need to be careful that we don't attach every suffering and every sickness to a particular sin because it's just not true. He says, anoint them with oil. And and in the ancient world, oil had a medicinal value. It's what you poured into wounds to soothe the wound, the pain. But it was also used in the ancient world to set someone apart. This idea of Aaron, who becomes a priest in Israel, is anointed with oil. David, when he becomes king, is anointed with oil. Even Jesus says, I was anointed to preach good news to the poor. Well, what do you do with the verse in verse 15 that says that if, if we pray and, we, and we're anointed with oil, then we will be saved, we'll be healed. What about, what about that verse where Paul says that I prayed three times that this thorn in my flesh, this, this ailment, this, this sickness would be gone and, and all three times God said no. Do we, do we now have an apparent or a real con, a contradiction in the Bible? I'd say no, because of what we know. I believe for two reasons, Paul was not healed. And it might be the reason you're not healed, even though you have prayed as you have been sick. First is God is more concerned about the state of your heart than he is about the state of your health. There are lots of people who bring great glory to God in the midst of their suffering. I don't wish it upon anybody. I don't pray that one day I will have that. But one of the reasons that Paul even says is that God might be glorified. And then second reason is though there is no condition on whether God will heal, when God heals is based on his timing and not ours. 
God promises to heal. In fact, he says the Lord will raise him up in verse 15. That is, God is going to heal us some now, some tomorrow, and some at the resurrection. But all of his people will be healed. The truth is that God often disrupts our comfort, not because he loves us less than we wish. He loves us more than we wish. This is what Ann Dillard said, a writer. She says, I have been my whole life a bell, but I have never known it. I never knew I was a bell until that moment when I was lifted and struck. What she's saying is that sometimes God allows us to be struck. Sometimes God even strikes us so that we will know who we really are. Sometimes it takes the illness, the time away, the self-reflection before we recognize that we are his and that every moment of our life is a gift from him. This is what Joni, uh, Johnny Erickson taught us said, the, the woman who all of her adult life has been spent in a wheelchair as a, a, a quadriplegic. She said, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that was never more true than the cross. Where God allowed his son to be murdered for sins that he had not committed in order to love us into salvation. The last Context is when you feel cheated. The way that, that uh, James brings this whole idea up is he begins talking about Elijah in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature. He's given him as an example of a, a righteous man's prayers. And he says, with a nature like ours, he's just like us, but he prayed fervently that it might not rain. In three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. It is that section where it talks about how Elijah defeats the 450 false prophets to Baal. But right before that section, and, and, and though that is a picture of a righteous man's prayers, there's another prayer that Elijah gives that is instructive to us. Right before this prayer, he's being chased all over the place by Queen Jezebel. And he's so upset that nobody's coming to his aid, including God. He cries out. And when he cries out, he's being very critical of God. And he says, I'm alone here, God. No one loves you like I do. Why are you allowing this pagan woman to come after me? So God sends an angel to tell Elijah about the unseen realities And one of the unseen realities the angel tells him is that there are 7,000 souls who have not bent the knee to Baal. It's what Elijah could not see in his pain is instructive to us that in our suffering, in our pain, we can't often see all of the realities around us. I think it's one of the reasons that theologian Garth Brooks said that sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. The truth is, you and I don't see what God sees. Tim Keller said that wisdom in prayer is what we would have asked God if we knew everything God knows and if we saw everything God sees. 
James is telling us we must trust that God's plan is better than our prayers. Doesn't mean don't pray. It just means in your prayers, recognize thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We keep asking for our mud puddles, but God wants to give us the ocean, the holiday at the sea. And that's why he's a good, good father. So what's the the most visible, tangible representation of the teaching of James? It's the Lord's Supper. Every child of God, every single person in this room, every married person, every divorced person, every widow, you have a husband in Jesus Christ. No one can cherish you more than Jesus. He is yours and you are his. And in a way, the Lord's Supper is a memorial, kind of like going to a funeral. You're remembering the life of the person who passed away. And that's important. Jesus literally says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. And that's true. But it's more than a memorial. The memorial is true because what he accomplished in his death has secured our future. And nothing is more illustrative about our future than of the wedding feast that's spoken of in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. That the Lord's Supper doesn't just point back. It points back for the theological foundation for the theological future that we're going. The eschatological future that we're going to a wedding feast where we will be joined forever with our husband, our good, good husband, Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. And so right now, the in-between, the in-between what happened on the cross and that wedding feast is the Lord's Supper. The, The beautiful, beautiful picture of a rehearsal dinner where, where we bring our stories And we put him into the story of a husband who died for his bride in order to make her perfect for the wedding. And so we're literally recounting our stories together and his story as his story overlays our stories and gives meaning and purpose and ultimately destination That's what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. And that's why we do it together. That's why we ask you to come. It's a picture picture of your wedding, of our wedding with Christ. Whether you're, you're single or widowed or divorced or you're married, whether you're in a great marriage or a bad marriage, they're all pointing to this meal that points to that feast where we become the bride of Christ, the pure and perfect bride of Christ because of our Savior. And that is the gift of a good, good father to you. Do you see yourself that way? Yes, sometimes he has to discomfort your comfort, discomfort my comfort, and I hate it. To admit that I love that would be a lie. But sometimes he does that because it's the only way my bell will be rung that I can know who I am.
And he's given all these other great gifts in our lives, in my life, so that I might, what? Give him thanks. And I have to trust that his plan is better than my prayers. Because they are. So let's go to our good, good father. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us more than we love ourselves. And we love ourselves a lot. We hate discomfort. We hate suffering. We hate pain. And all of that is because of the fall. But we ask you to keep assuring our hearts that we are yours and that you are ours that your plan is better than our prayers, that even the good things in our lives, including each other, is a gift from you, the giver of all good gifts, our good, good Father. And I pray in this room there's going to be someone who does not see you that way. Let's recognize that. That life's been hard. I pray that you might give them a new perspective today, a perspective of a father who truly loves us enough to send his own son in our place, that we could be yours now and forevermore. And I pray that you might put people in each other's lives, all of our lives, that will remind us that we're the bell that you created us to be, that sometimes that we have to be rung in order to know that we are that bell of yours. I pray that it's not painful, but if it has to be, make it so, so that we will know we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.